a spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Hello, and welcome to the 107th episode of Curiosityness. I am Travis DeRose, the host of the show, and this episode is a fun one because we're talking about bananas. That's right, just bananas, the fruit, but it's not just bananas. There's more to it. It's more than just your normal fruit. This isn't apples or grapes, people. Uh, it's a crazy story here. It's really fun. I, I, I had heard a bit about the banana situation, but had no idea. So, uh, okay. I, I had on Dan uh, Coppell. That's who you're about to listen to. He is the author of a book called Banana, The Fate of the Fruit That Changed the World. And that subtitle is correct. It did change the world and is changing the world. Uh, there's just so much to this story. It's crazy. So many fun little banana facts. Uh, there's a bunch of corporate greed and, you know, kind of dummies doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing. That's messing up a bunch of the other people. You know, that the typical story. Uh, bananas are seedless and sexless. So how the hell do we have bananas that keep growing? Well, you're going to find out. Uh, the banana that you ate or that you grew up on is probably not the same banana that your grandparents or your great-grandparents grew up on. Ooh, that's true. Uh, let's let's just get to the episode. There's so much here that I can't even give you a proper introduction. You just got to listen to the episode. So let's get to it. Here is episode 107 with Dan Coppell. Dan, how you doing, man? Good to have you on. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, stoked to have you on. So uh, bananas, huh? It's it's the uh, the fruit that changed the world. It's the gift that keeps on giving. You know, I, I mean, I wrote my banana book in um, 2008. That's forever ago in media yeah. and books, and yet the book still generates interest. It's still in print. It still sells. Um, you know, it was a book and a topic that I got to say my publisher didn't really have a lot of enthusiasm for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we initially only printed, I think, 7,000 books. Oh, wow. In the seventh printing, we're in five languages. Um, Dude, hell yeah. Yeah, and it's good. You know, I mean, I, I always like I, I always tell people my specialty is writing about things that don't seem interesting and trying to find mm-hmm. a way to make them interesting. And bananas are the poster child for bland and boring, and, but, but they're really not. And that's what I love about it. Yeah. No, it's so true. It, it's like a take-it-for-granted type of fruit. It's always there. You know, they're 19 cents at Trader Joe's. Just grab them and go. But uh, there is a tremendous story behind it, and I'm glad you have kind of, uh, you know, uncovered it for us. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I, I, I've, I've really, you know, when I first started doing this after the book came out, and we were doing a lot of publicity and media, and, you know, I really resisted allowing people call me Dan the Banana Man, but a decade down the road, I have sort of embraced that as my brand, and uh, I probably wouldn't have chosen it myself, but I right. sort of anticipated it, and in any case, I'm fine with it now. Okay, that's good. You dressing up in a uh, banana suit anytime soon? No, no, but uh, I, I did, early on in my research, um, the place is gone now, but it was in Altadena, which is uh, just north of, of L.A., mm-hmm. the Banana Club International um, and I went to their meeting, um, and there was a guy dressed in a banana suit. And not only was he dressed in a banana suit, but he also um, set himself on fire. Um, what? 
a stunt, not I mean like a, a controlled stunt, not like sure, yeah, I'm protesting not for a protest. <laughs> but um, that was when I knew that I'd come to a topic that was not only sort of politically and biologically important, but also just completely weird and cool. Um, yeah, the, the the proprietor of the Banana Club, a uh, guy named Ken Bannister or Ken Bananister. Um, right, sure. Passed away, and his banana memorabilia connection is known as the collection is known as the International Banana Museum, and it went down to Hesperia, and then it was in Vegas. I think it's in Salton Sea now. It uh, is. I ha- I went there a couple years ago. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ken, I mean, what you see in Salton is just a fraction. Ken had a whole storefront in Altadena. Um, I'd say thousands of of, of banana related items. I. I remember, and he was getting a little old, really great guy, and um, he called me up one day and said, uh, you're the guy to buy my museum and keep it going. And I, I thought, well, probably not, but but let's discuss it. How much do you want? He said, $800,000. Whoa. <laughs> I said, well, Ken, you know, I, I considering I made barely a year's salary to write that book, <laughs> that's probably a, a, a long shot. Out of reach there, yeah. But the lives on in, in, in the you know in the low desert or the high desert out there in California. Yeah, man, that is so funny that that is the connection because I yeah we just happened to stumble upon it in in the Salton Sea. It's like in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing there, and if I remember correctly, the the I think it was the owner we were talking to. He said he just happened. He was kind of looking for kind of a, a gimmick, a roadside attraction type of thing to bring people into his shop or his gas station there, and he's. I think he said he found it for sale on eBay or something like that and just bought this whole banana collection and, yeah. and became the Banana Museum. Yeah, I think they've got one of my books in there. I've talked to them before, um, the Salt and Sea guys. I mean, they're, uh, you know, bless them for uh, trying to keep that alive. I, I, it's been a collection. You know, it's like one of those things where it moves from place to place and I'm sure pieces of it sort of vanish along the way. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure I, I haven't been to the Salt and Sea one. Um, but I've talked to them, and I, I think, you know, let's consider it a best of the original banana collection. Mm-hmm. But it's funny because collecting banana-related stuff is a thing. I mean, I know a woman who collects uh, banana postcards. I, I know a banana scientist down in Colombia who connect, collects banana memorabilia. I know another guy in China um, who's a plant pathologist who has, like, a whole banana display in his office. I don't. Um, <laughs> even though people give me tons of banana stuff, it pretty much gets filed away. Um, but, but again, it sort of uh, speaks to that strange question of what is it about bananas that, that makes people so interested. In, and I experienced the same thing. You know, I had re- originally just written a magazine article. And um, I came back from Honduras where I visited the former head Chiquita plantation for, for Central America still a banana plantation, although it's uh, owned by a different entity now. And I'd spent time in the old Chiquita library, um, which is just row after row of research papers and marketing materials, all this banana, another banana collection, really, of printed matter. And I, 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 got, I wrote this article, and it was about 4,000 words, and I thought, there's more to say. Um, and if I can't find a book about this, I'm going to go broke because I can't get it out of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, I was able to write a book. Um, and, uh, you know, I really, of course, I'm going to say this, but, but I really believe the banana is sort of 
the perfect lens for understanding basically everything about humanity. <laughs> I, mean, I really, I really believe that. Um, you know, my book is not super deep, but it is very broad and mm -hmm. it's on everything. Um, and, and that's what I love about bananas is like, you can connect anything to bananas. I'm, uh, don't make me do it now because I, I, I don't think I have the, sh the spiel down, but I used to play six degrees of banana separation. Like when I'd give talks and stuff, I'd say, name anything, and I'll connect it to a banana in six steps or less. And I oh, my God. That, you know? <laughs> Yeah, man, it's it is crazy. So I mean, let's let's dive into it a bit. Like where, because it, I feel like there's so many. And you know, I reading your book, I was like, damn, that's you know, like that's the fact of the book. That's the fact of the book. That's so cool, you know, all this stuff. But let's dive into it. So, I mean, do we should we start with just kind of where where bananas come from, wild bananas, that type of stuff? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, well, let's start with why you know maybe maybe your listeners or viewers don't know why bananas are so important. Um, and that's especially true if they're in North America, you know, uh, the banana in North America is, a, it is the most popular fruit sold in supermarkets everywhere, including in the United States, Canada, all across Europe by far. Um, but it's also sort of a lot of, you know, we, we could live without bananas in a way. It might not be the, the greatest thing, but, but it's still sort of an accessory. It's a snack that you have if you're for your lunchbox or you slice it into your cereal or, you give it to your kids. But, you know, that banana that we eat is an essential staple food for millions and millions of people. And that's, that's what's so interesting about the banana. It's sort of a snack for us, um, cheapest food in the supermarket, a commodity. But if you go to Africa, Asia, part, you know, other parts of the world, um, people rely on bananas. And, and without bananas, they starve. And, and Banana is the oldest cultivated fruit. There's signs of it being cultivated as far back as tens of thousands of years ago. Um, and uh, that's because it's easy to grow. And so you, you have this sort of, you know, who grew the first banana? There's different arguments about that. But let's just say it was grown somewhere in Asia. Well, the banana plants are very transportable. You can just dig one out, keep it for a year, you know, put it in a boat, put it on, on your back and plant it 100 miles away. So it's a very easy to grow food stuff, you know, high in calories. So you can see how it became so popular um, mm -hmm. and, and, and spread so far. Uh, you know, all bananas descend from these Asian, Asian bananas, um, but the, the roots they've taken. And I should say that the bananas that, you know, we, you and I here in the United States are just one species, one breed, uh, the Cavendish banana is called. But there are actually over a thousand different kinds of bananas. Um, uh, I've tasted about three hundred of them. Ooh, uh, nice! Probably, possibly more than anyone else in the world. But yeah. <laughs> you know, not that that's much to brag about, really. Like, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> I'm jealous. But um, you know, it's 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 more than just this sort of like basic yellow nineteen cents at Trader Joe's, like you, like you described thing. It's it's really an important crop and it's a crop that contributes to the, to actually like the growth of human civilization. The cultivation of bananas um, is one of the things that moves us away from hunter gatherer lifestyles, you know, where we didn't have communities where people were on the move looking for food, growing wild. And the ease of cultivation of bananas is what, allows these very first communities to build. People plant bananas, and once you plant, you stay where you are to watch 
watch your crops grow. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I, it sounds a little crazy, but bananas are partially responsible for the birth of civilization itself. And you can't get much more ambitious and broad than that, but that, but it's true. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's, it's so crazy, but yeah, it's, it's so very true. And yeah, just such a good point to just elaborate on is how we, it's just a snack for us. We, if it wasn't around, you know, the bananas are gone, we'd, you know, it'd be kind of a bummer, but we'd get by, but it's, it is crucial for a lot of people, huh? Yeah, it's, it is for, you know, um, millions of people in Africa, um, you know, in the, in the lakes region of, of Africa, which is Rwanda, Burundi, parts of Uganda, um, people get as much as 90% of their daily caloric intake from bananas. Um, wow. And so you can imagine if those bananas went away and they are under great environmental pressure um, from disease, from lack of diversity, all, all sorts of other things, they're threatened. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people will, will starve. And we've seen that happening already. You see that in, you know, during the um, Rwandan uh, genocide of the, I think it was the early, late 90s, early 2000s, but, you know, people were crowded into refugee camps and they were people who relied on bananas and they didn't get them. And so there was starvation. Mm -hmm. It's, 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 again, it's, it's you know, not to, not to be a, you know, super bummer about the thing that makes up our wonderful banana split, but, but it really is just so important a crop um, as important to the people who rely on it as rice might be in, in you know, Vietnam or Thailand, as, as wheat would be in the United States or Canada or, or, or Europe. Um, it's, it's that critical. Mm -hmm. So what are the, uh, um, what are the other kinds of varieties of bananas like? Are they all pretty similar to the ones that we get, the, the Cavendish, or are they, or are they different? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that by, by sort of giving you a, a little example. Um, the country that has the most banana biodiversity is India. There are over 600 banana uh, varieties found in India. The banana we eat um, is grown in India, and it is known colloquially as the hotel banana. And that is called that because it is served to basically wealthy tourists in hotels. Sure. Um, it is The Cavendish is, has some great advantages, but good but superior taste and texture is not one of them. Um, oh, sure. It's, it's a, it's an okay banana. Um, it's, it, I, I like to tell people that the Cavendish is sort of, if you went to the, if you went to your local Safeway and you bought one of those like two gallon buckets of vanilla ice cream for a couple of bucks, you know, the cheapest possible ice cream, the kind you'd, you know, give to your kids at summer camp or something. That's what the Cavendish is. It's not Haagen-Dazs. It's not Ben and Jerry's. It's not, it's not a fancy or even very good tasting banana. It's okay. It's acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, but what the Cavendish has going for it is shipability. Um, it ripens. All bananas ripen at different rates. All bananas have different thickness of skin. So you can imagine this fruit, which comes from tropical countries. How do you get it to places like the United States and keep it intact, keep it from being too ripe, keep it from getting rotten, keep it from getting bruised, torn. Very few bananas have the right combination of shipping qualities. So mm -hmm. when we talk about Cavendish being not a very good banana, and it's not a very good banana from a culinary standpoint, but from an engineering standpoint, it's a great banana. Um, now, there are bananas that could not stand the transport. Um, about eight or nine years ago, um, I went on one of the 
most fun trips of my life. Um, a Belgian scientist and I went hunting for lost banana species in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Wow. Uh, and we went to an abandoned agricultural research station called Yangambi. Yangambi was, um, was created in the 1920s by the Belgians, who were the colonial rulers of, of Congo then. And when Congo gained independence in 1960, the Belgians hightailed it out of there um, because people were pissed at them for good reasons, <laughs> for taking over their country and oppressing everybody. Um, and these, they were breeding bananas there, um, bananas that might possibly have a level of disease resistance that could be very useful in commercial crops. So mm. we went looking for these bananas. And one of the bananas we found um, was a banana that was called Yangambi K4. So Yangambi is the name of the place. K4 just meant it we found it, or it was found at the fourth kilometer along the only road through this, you know, 200 square mile former research station. Um, and we did some work on it. And what we discovered was that the K4 banana was actually a Thai banana. Um, now, how did the Thai banana get to Belgium, um, get, to, get to this Belgian colony? possibly brought by Thai or Chinese workers in the early 1900s who were, who were known to be there, possibly brought by um, the Belgians themselves. But it's an absolutely delicious banana. Um, it's got a very sort of um, sweet taste, um, more, more character than the Cavendish. Another mm -hmm. one found there is called Ibota Ibota. Um, uh, Ibota is the Swahili word for fertile. So... Ibota Ibota means fertile, fertile, or really fertile. Um, and these bananas grow in these huge bunches, a couple hundred um, per, per bunch. Um, and that's the most delicious banana I've ever tasted. Um, it's actually like you could almost talk about it the way like a fancy person might talk about bourbon or wine. You know, you, wow. you taste it. First it's sweet. Then there's a little sourness. The texture is really creamy. Um, this is a wonderful banana. Um, unfortunately, the Ibota Ibota has this characteristic in the banana world called finger drop. So just to give your, your listeners a little terminology, a banana bunch is this giant bunch of bananas from one tree, usually mm -hmm. between 100 and 200. A banana hand is what you'd probably call a bunch. Like if you picked it up in Trader Joe's and there's six bananas, we would call that a bunch. But in banana terms, it's actually a hand. So mm -hmm. an individual fruit is a finger. Um, and finger drop means that the second you touch the banana at, while it's still in the bunch or still on the hand, all of the fruit falls off because it's very oh. tenuously held. So once the banana is exposed to air, the peel is open. You can't transport it. So Ibota Ibota, this wonderful, delicious, amazing, you know, plentiful in where it's found bananas is one that is n likely to never be grown or transported to the United States because there's just right now no way to, to, to do the engineering part of it. Cavendish, on the other hand, doesn't have finger drop, has tough skin, ripens slowly, um, fairly simple to, to put it on a boat and, you know, at, the, at a port in Guatemala and get it to arrive at the port of Long Beach um, intact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so crazy that that's just... The reason we have it is just because it's kind of the most practical. It comes in the best shipping container naturally. Yeah, it's and and uh, you know if you if you read my book, you know that Cavendish was not the first banana to be imported to the United yeah. States. 
Now, originally, um, in the early 1900s or late 1870s, around during those three decades, a banana called the Gros Michel, or Big Mike, was introduced, and that became the commercial banana. Now, before that, bananas were more or less unheard of in, in cooler zones. You could find, Thomas Jefferson wrote about bananas, you could, you could find them, um, but one of the things that was funny about them was that um, it was considered, like, too risque for women to eat bananas because of their shape, for example. So <laughs> you read these old pre-1870 cookbooks, and if they mention bananas, a lot of the time is spent uh, explaining how to cut and present the bananas in a way that is not suggestive. Sure. Um, of course, they don't use that language because even to be suggestive about the suggestiveness would be too dirty. But um, but but these bananas back then, you know, you cut a banana, you serve it, you let it sit, it's going to go brown. They weren't very good. Um, this grow shell banana came originally from Jamaica, um, and uh, it was the one that banana entrepreneurs for a company called Boston Fruit, which later became United Fruit and is now known as Chiquita. So this is the original company. Um figured out how to import to the United States and figured out how to market. What's remarkable about the Gros Michel is that it's what we call functionally extinct now. In other words, it still exists. Um, I've, I've tasted them. I know where to get them. But mm-hmm. it was wiped out by this disease as a commercial crop um, in the, between 1915 and 1950. And so it was no longer growable. Now, the Gros Michel had some real advantages over Cavendish. It tasted better. Um, had a better texture. It was much tougher. So if you look at pictures of banana boats being loaded, like say in 1930, you'll see they're just throwing these big bunches into the refrigerated holes of these these ships because they were so huh. tough. We didn't need to do that. Cavendish, when when that was adopted after the Gros Michel almost went extinct, have to be put in boxes. So you see banana. You know anyone who's ever moved. Probably you used a banana box or two. Yep. Those cardboard boxes are because the Cavendish, as tough as it is, as as much as it's tougher than other bananas, is actually a pretty flimsy banana compared to the Gros Michel. Um, and it also doesn't taste as good. But if you make the list of the things a banana needs to do in order to be a good export product, of all the thousand bananas in the world, there's a strong argument to be made, which I don't 100% buy into, but but let's just say, you know, it's a, it's a valid argument that only Cavendish fits that bill. Um, you know, when the Gros Michel was going away, even Cavendish was was considered so inferior and so unshippable because it, because it bruised easily outside of boxes that it wasn't a good substitute. Um, in fact, Chiquita, prior to the end of Gros Michel, had a market share of close to 80 to 90% of, of the United States bananas. When they, wow. the bigger company, um, being more slow-moving, being more set in their ways, refused to adopt the Cavendish. And a second company um, came in and introduced the Cavendish first and gained a 50% market share. Um, you know, white basically bringing Chiquita to the edge of bankruptcy. That company was then called Standard Fruit. Today it's known as Dole. So... You know, these names that we have in our supermarket today have deep, tragic, and fascinating histories um, attached to them. Yeah, totally. And so just to just to reiterate, too, the the so the the thing that caused or, or was making us kind of switch from the Gros Michel to the Cavendish was really just this disease? Yeah, so so the business model of bananas remains the same. Um, 
whether it's now or 100 years ago um, or 120 years ago, and that's to make it the cheapest fruit in the supermarket. And if you think about that, that's crazy. Because like I, I live here in Maine, I can go picking apples every every fall. I can right. buy not Maine. I can buy Maine grown apples that are grown less than twenty miles from my house, and they cost more than bananas do, which are grown two thousand miles away, go bad way quicker than apples, um, and need to be shipped in refrigerated containers. You know, yeah, over oceans. So, you know, how do you make a, the banana? How did you make the banana? whether it's the Gros Michel or the Cabbage, the cheapest fruit in the supermarket? And the answer to that question is best figured out by asking another question. How did McDonald's make their hamburger the cheapest hamburger on earth? It's all through mass production, limited menus, um, limited choice, and low quality and cheap labor. Um, So the banana, as we know it, I wouldn't call it, it is a fruit, but I, we shouldn't think of it as a product of a farm. We should think of it as a product of a factory. Um, so the banana companies have figured out a way to make bananas so cheap that they're cheaper than even local fruit. And to do this, they've needed economies of scale. They've needed cheap labor. And they've needed a singular focus on one banana. If a banana company brought 10 bananas in, you know, it's just like – I mean, sure, McDonald's has like a fish sandwich and a hamburger and a chicken sandwich. But really, you know, McDonald's does not offer a great amount of variety. Fast food doesn't. And it's the same thing with bananas. If if you started, the argument goes, if you started offering the fancier bananas, the better bananas, the harder to ship bananas, you would upset the commodity market. The profit margins on bananas are very low. Um, mm. And so... I, you know, I personally believe that there is a way to bring better bananas in and that it's an important um, task, banana diversity for the environment, for, for culinary purposes, for human rights. I mean, all sorts of things. Um, but the banana companies don't see it that way. And they continue to focus on a commodity banana, um, which is produced generally by underpaid workers who are exposed to large amounts of pesticides. Um, and whether it's the Gros Michel um, or the Cavendish, that's what they do. And so the story of the Gros Michel is, you know, they planted this banana and pretty soon these plantations started going bad. The, the fruit would stop, the trees would stop bearing fruit, basically. Mm-hmm. The, the disease, Panama disease, it's named that because it was first noted in Panama. The actual name for it is um, Fusarium wilt, um, is a fungus and it's fatal. Um, not only is it fatal... But once you're, because it's in the soil, once your particular banana plantation has been contaminated with it, you can't grow bananas there again. So if you think about it, it's the early 1900s. Americans are going banana crazy. Um, United Fruit, known as Chiquita today, has, is really the first, I mean, branding a fruit. That was never done before. Um, you know, give, selling cookbooks, getting doing marketing and PR, you know, like, I mean, finding influencers, finding doctors to endorse bananas. I mean, they, they, they taught people how, what a banana was, how to eat it, and they kept it cheap. And so demand is growing, going up, up, up. At the same time, these plantations are going down, down, down because of this disease. And so the banana companies are constantly looking for fresh land um, to, to grow their product, to meet U.S. demand. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's no such thing as abandoned farmland. I mean, there are people living there. So the banana companies start engaging in politics um, and 
19 times between 1900 and let's say 1954, banana companies with the help of the U.S. military take over countries, overthrow governments just so they can have um, banana land cheap. Because remember, the profit margin is so low, the commodity market, they can't afford to spend an extra penny per pound or they'll go broke. They massacre workers, um, their families. They, they, they prevent any level of human rights from coming because workers who are paid more will upset their business model. Um, at the same time, this disease is destroying their plantations, so they're becoming more desperate. More people want bananas. There's fewer places to grow them, so they become more and more aggressive, more and more evil. And I, I'm not excusing that. It's horrible. Um, but, but it's a very serious um, history. And, you know, we, we've... You know, you may have heard the term banana republic. That's not just a store. I mean, it's a, to me, it's incredibly offensive that this store is called a banana republic. A banana republic is a term um, that means a country that was run by the banana companies with the help of the U.S. government. Um, wow. it, uh, this happened over and over again, um, you know, with, with, with a lot of bloodshed and misery. Anyway, by the, you know, despite the military prowess, despite the weapons, despite the death, um, Eventually, this disease chases the Gromachelle out of existence as a commercial crop. Um, and the banana industry, starting around 1950, started to panic. They don't know what to do. Um, mm -hmm. And they start experimenting with other varieties. But none of them taste as good as the Gromachelle. Um, none of them ship as well. And there are other problems, too. Um, you know, people don't instinctively know how to eat a banana. I mean, when, when the banana was first introduced in the United States, it's green. You have to, they, people have to be taught, like, how to let it sit for seven days, how not to let it sit for too long. Um, you know, these are, these are educational things. So, you know, there was, there was a banana that was a great candidate as a Gros Michel replacement, better tasting than the Cavendish, um, easier to grow, very shippable, but it didn't turn yellow. It stayed more or less green. And the banana company, mm -hmm. like, you know, Mama housewife in 1954 is not going to figure this one out. Wow. I, I'm not saying that's true or not. I think mama housewife probably was pretty bright and could have figured it out. But um, they, they, they kept trying all these bananas and Cavendish was really, it was like picking the runt of the litter. It was, it was a, a bad banana in a lot of ways. And Chiquita was convinced it would fail, but it actually was adopted pretty well and pretty quickly. And, by 1960, 64, 65, the Cavendish has taken over, and most people have forgotten the Gros Michel. Yep. And the only, and I'll tell you the story of the Cavendish if you want, but the only remnant of the Gros Michel, I mean, you can go get a Gros Michel. They grow them, you know, you can find one in someone's front yard in Jamaica or in Honduras or something. Mm. The trees still grow. Um, you can find them in Hawaii. They're grown there under the name Bluefields. Um, oh. So any of your viewers are... On the island of Kona, the, the Kona Farmer's Market on Wednesdays um, sells Bluefields bananas, um, and they're worth taste checking out. They also sell a variety called the Ice Cream Banana, which, yes, tastes like banana ice cream. Um, they Whoa. probably five or six other bananas. Hawaii is an important banana-growing place. Um, a lot of interesting, weird South Pacific bananas are found there, uh, Fun, kind of fun bananas. Um, but, you know, the um, what I was saying is the, the – the Cavendish is adopted and, you know, everything seems well in the banana world, except the business model doesn't change. The commodity model doesn't change. And if you look at the fruit industry, 
the fruit industry long ago rejected the commodity model in a lot of ways. When I was growing up in the 1970s, we had two kinds of apples in our store. We had red ones and green ones, red delicious, golden delicious, maybe Granny Smith. <laughs> um, none of those are very good apples, actually. Like compared to now, like a Fuji apple or a Gala or, or Honeycrisp. Yeah. Um, and you can go to the supermarket now and there might be 20 kinds of apples there. There might be mm -hmm. six kinds of pears in Trader Joe's. There might be 18 kinds of citrus fruit, four kinds of orange but there's still only one kind of banana. Um, and that's because the banana industry lives apart from entrepreneurship. It lives apart from innovation. It is so stuck in its monoculture, so stuck in its business model of being the cheapest fruit um, and the most plentiful fruit that it's psychologically, and I, I hate to psychoanalyze a corporation, but after 10 years of this, it's the only way to say it. There's a sort of form of mental illness that goes on to banana executives where they they don't see the benefit. And look, we know that monoculture, you know, relying on one crop is a bad thing. You know, whether it's mm -hmm. grapes, which are being destroyed by blights in California, um, whether it's bananas, um, or whether it's more abstract monocultures like big box stores, you know, wiping out mom and pop businesses. That's a monoculture, too. We know that monocultures are not healthy um, from an environmental standpoint, from a taste standpoint. Um, and so when Cavendish was adopted, one of the things you would think is that the banana industry would say, you know, we've spent the past 75 years starting wars over this monoculture to preserve this monoculture. And we failed nature. We, we, we were able to kill people. We were able to take over countries, but we could not fight nature ultimately. Um, and you would think at that point, they would have said, let's get some variety in here. Let's protect ourselves. And let's not put all our bananas in one basket. Let's find sure. out ways to deliver other kinds of bananas. It's possible. But they didn't. And they were warned. And somebody said, you know, you're relying on Cavendish, and uh, that's going to come up and bite you in the butt one day. And sure enough, in 1989, um, you know, Chiquita and Dole are cruising along with their 50-50 split of the market. And a version of Panama disease because Cavendish is resistant to Panama disease. That's the main reason it's adopted. Mm -hmm. Bananas, bananas are sort of like identical cousins. That's the best way to put them. All bananas are really closely related. All bananas get sick, but not all bananas get sick from the same thing. It's sort of like those old Venn diagrams, like eight, you know, 85 different kinds of bananas might get this particular disease, but six might not. So, the Cavendish didn't get Panama disease, but then Panama disease mutates or a new form emerges or is found um, in Malaysia. Most likely it was lurking in the soil with no bananas to prey on. And they start growing bananas. They start growing Cavendish. Now, why do they grow Cavendish in Malaysia, which is a banana rich place? Asia has dozens of kinds. It's because people are moving to cities and they don't have those village bananas that they grew up with. You know, if you go to a small village in Vietnam or Something that you'll see a banana tree in the in the front yard. It, it's not going to be a Cavendish tree for sure, but it's a tree that that provides subsistence um, for that family, and it provides trade and commerce because you know bananas grow fruit once a year. So, like if you're my next door neighbor in Vietnam, your tree might fruit in March, and you can't eat all 200 bananas, a, you know, in the next week. Mm -hmm. My tree might fruit in July, so we're constantly trading with each other, helping each other, right? Um, but as people move to cities, this goes away. And they, but they still want bananas because everyone loves bananas. 
well, what banana is it that can withstand a long truck ride from these plantations? It's Cavendish. Mm-hmm. So Cavendish not only gets sick, Panama disease doesn't only hit it, but it starts displacing rare bananas, important bananas. So in India, for example, you see, and I'm going to sort of make up these numbers because I don't have them in hand, but you see Cavendish going from 5 to 10% of the total banana crop there to 60%. And then suddenly Cavendish gets sick. Um, and this disease, Panama disease, you know, the, the banana companies know what it is. It's wiped them out before. But what do they do? Nothing. They do nothing. And they, what they say is, you know, and I'm, begin, I'm beginning to work on my book about 10 years later. They say, oh, well, it's not a problem. It's just a Malaysia thing. If it is a problem, it won't happen now. And when it does happen, we'll be able to figure it out. Well, if you look at the map of the spread of Panama disease, um, it's hopped over oceans. It's now found in, in, you know, from Malaysia. It's found in mainland Asia, in Pakistan, in India, in the Philippines. Um, it's found in Australia. It's found in Africa. Um, and when my book came out, you know, people would always ask me for a prediction because what I would say is, you know, most of our bananas, all of our bananas come from Latin America where Panama disease has not been seen. Mm-hmm. And the banana industry, you know, I remember the CEO of Chiquita telling his stockholders at one point, um, well, it's never going to jump that ocean to Latin America. You know, even though it jumped from the Philippines to Australia, which is like pretty far. Um, and, and we don't have to worry about this. It's never going to hit Latin America. My book came out and I said, well, I'm not going to make a prediction, but if I was forced to, I would say we'll see it in Latin America in 10 to 20 years. Exactly 13 years after, or, or exactly 10 years after my book came out, it appeared in Latin America. Wow. Um, so now Panama disease is in Colombia, and it's probably in other countries too, but they keep it quiet. Mm. Um, and so this very same thing that wiped out the banana has now come home, and it is a huge threat to our banana crop. And the question is, what is going to be done about it? Yeah. And that's a good question. Because <laughs> there's no simple answer. And the answers that I think are mostly being offered are not good answers. Mm. So um, and if you want me to tell you what's, what's being done about it, what I think should be done about it, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, yeah, let's dive into it because that's, I mean, I'm so curious about what, are, are we just going to repeat history or what can be done? Well, let's break it, let's break the series, the solution sets into two simple camps, opposing camps. One is Romichel went away, Cavendish replaced it, both commodity bananas. We find a third commodity banana to replace Cavendish and we punt the disease ball down the field until long after I'm gone, maybe 50, another 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, problem with that there's no obvious candidate the best candidates are bananas that have been genetically engineered GMO bananas now I have no problem with GMO bananas and we can talk about that I know people will hate me for it um, my issues with, with GMO are sort of the evil corporations that, that use the technology to hurt people but the, the science itself I think is sound especially in bananas mm-hmm. and it's possible there are under development um, our commodity type bananas that may be resistant to Panama disease. Um, However, even if those bananas come in, I think the other side of the solution, which is banana diversity, is more important. If you get away from the monoculture and you grow more than one kind of banana at various price points, like we see at apples, you know, you still have those red delicious apples, they're 99 cents a bag, pennies a pound, Mm -hmm. or you have a Honeycrisp that's $2.99 an apple, $2.99 a pound. Um, 
that allows entrepreneurship. It allows more money to come in. The banana, banana workers have been fucked over for over a century. And although I, I don't have a lot of optimism that the profit motive is going to, you know, the money is going to trickle down to them. I would hope it would pour down to them. There's just no way you can provide the basics to banana workers in Latin America the way the business is structured now. The only hope is to introduce higher margin bananas. And that helps insulate your crops, encourages crop rotation, encourages um, proper soil management, and it hopefully brings in more money to the people who deserve it. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, everyone says I'm naive to think that. And look, it's probably true. If if there was a way to introduce a $5 a pound banana, I'm sure Chiquita would want to keep $4.99 out of that that price. But the monoculture way is just not, not, it's it's a dead end. The, the, the mm-hmm. monoculture is a dead end, and it's just kind of crazy to me if you think about it. All these different kinds of apples, all these different kinds of citrus, even wine. Like when I was a kid, you had red wine, white wine. You know, maybe some aficionados had French wine. Now, now you go to Trader Joe's, and there's like 200 different kinds of wine. They're all good. Yeah. Or most of them, many of them are good. So people want variety. They want good mm-hmm. taste. Every time I do media on bananas and I say how much better the Gros Michel tastes, I get calls from chefs. How do I get one of these? And I got to tell them, you know, if you're in New York and you want a Gros Michel banana, you better have the money to put a greenhouse up on top of your building somewhere and grow them yourself because that's the only way you're going to get them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just astonishing to me that in a world where the average person's palate has become very sophisticated and we're very used to trying exotic new stuff, that somehow all of us who are smart enough to want that good wine, all of us who are have enough taste or whatever to want those great apples, all of us who like like 92% dark chocolates, um, but somehow like we don't want that delicious banana. Makes mm-hmm. no sense. Everybody wants that delicious banana because it's so good. And the banana companies have an obligation, not just for their business and their shareholders, but an obligation to right the wrongs that they've committed. Tens of thousands of deaths, hundreds of thousands, related to the banana industry and to the banana business model. And it would be nice if that was acknowledged and if banana diversity could be seen as the beginning of a sort of agricultural reparations program. That's probably the best mm-hmm. way to yeah. So that's, that's sort of the, the speech on on, on uh, banana diversity. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, just, you know, me as a, a consumer, like you said, I would love to have different varieties of bananas. And, you know, I I buy different varieties of, of apples all the time, even if they're more expensive or whatever, because I want the, the difference. You know, I would do the same with bananas. It seems obvious. It does seem obvious. And the, the all, so the answer is shipping, how to ship those bananas. And, you know, you hear a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a, um, there's a, a educational facility down in Costa Rica. I think it's called um, earth university. I'm not sure, but it's, it's funded by whole foods. And mm-hmm. in a way it's kind of great. I mean, they, they, they take kids who probably would grow up very poor and they train them to be banana growers. Um, but what they don't train them to be is banana engineers. It's they train them to grow cabinets. Um, they grow it efficiently, grow it well. They probably make be- better money doing it. But what really needs to happen is we don't need to learn how to grow more bananas. We need to learn how to ship more bananas. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've, ta- I've said this to, you know, people at Whole Foods in their executive suite, like, 
stop training farmers and start training engineers. Yeah. Um, and and you'll you will solve the banana diversity issue. Wow. That's, so that's kind of like yeah, it's kind of exciting. It sounds like a you know like a problem that can be tackled and solved by the by the right people. I, be, I believe that. I mean, it's been 12, 13 years since my book came out, and I've been more or less making this speech, although my, some of my views have changed a little bit over the years. I've been more or less making this speech for, for a while. Um, and I, I do think that companies like Chiquita are doing better. I think they have a better – I think they want to do the right thing or know what the right thing is. But it's very difficult. You know, the banana industry is like a giant ocean liner. And trying to change it is like trying to push an ocean liner onto a different course while you're in a rowboat. You're, you know, you're right at the bow of the ocean liner. You're pushing it from your rowboat. Well, what's going to happen? The ocean liner is not going anywhere. You're going to sink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's kind of what it is. I, I do think there are definitely people in the banana industry now who understand that social justice, that environmental, that really good environmental policies, not bullshit environmental policies like, um, I'm just going to say it, the Rainforest Alliance, not, not, not envi- in other words, not environmental policies that help us feel good, us, right. us rich white folks in the United States feel good, but real environmental policies that bring social justice and equality um, and better opportunities and health to banana workers and banana communities. I think there are people who understand that that needs to happen, even in the mm-hmm. banana but how do you move that ocean liner? Um, how do you change course? Um, you know, it might, maybe a better way to look at it is as, as an aircraft carrier. Even if I was captain of an aircraft carrier, I couldn't just steer my carrier to a different port without going up the chain of command all the way to the Pentagon. Right. Um, and, and so we haven't seen any serious or any obvious efforts to make those changes. I know that it's talked about. Um, I know that there are good people who talk about it um, within these companies. The question is how to turn that talk into, into actual change. Yeah. So now if we are able to kind of, uh, or let's say we lose the, the Cavendish and we can kind of pivot to other varieties of bananas, but maybe the price goes up, is that going to affect, you know, those communities that rely on, you know, like you said, almost over 90% of their caloric intake from bananas or are are they already on different species of bananas and well, they're they're on different varieties so so um let's uh, get our ter- our scientific terminology right um bananas are not in di- bananas are all one species more or less um we're talking mm, right. varieties or cultivars which means cultivated varieties bananas are a cultivated fruit um every banana that's eaten has been developed you know despite many of them being so different from each other with the assistance of people there are wild bananas, um, which are found um, in Asia. Um, they're very small. They have very hard pits, very little fruit on them. Um, and that's the sort of the progenitor species. Or progenitor, and that is a species. But, but the actual varieties, um, like the ones in Africa, are called highland plantain. So a plantain is a banana. You know, uh, you know we, we tend to see like a plantain is more of a sort of starchy potato substitute, um, while a Cavendish the banana world is known as a dessert banana. It's a sweeter banana. But really, for the sake of, of physiology, they're both bananas. They're just different mm-hmm. varieties. So highland plantains don't necessarily get Panama disease, um, but they do get other diseases that Cavendish can bring. So what you're seeing is the expansion of Cavendish into Africa. Um, banana companies tried to launch some huge um, 
banana plantations in Mozambique about eight or nine years ago. Um, Cavendish plantations designed mostly to serve, again, like growing urban markets, especially in the Middle East, you know, Dubai, Riyadh, uh, places like that. And they brought, somehow they brought Panama disease in there. Um, so what happens is you see existing banana places that don't grow Cavendish go away in exchange for Cavendish plantations. Cavendish comes in and vectors in disease or goes or gets sick itself. So it's a very complicated house of cards. There is no direct threat from Panama disease to the African highland plantains, although other subsistence bananas do get Panama disease. But there is a indirect threat that's just as important. Um, and, and, you know, bananas can get sick of other things. So like I said, you can catch, um, for example, a, a blight called Sigatoka, very common in Cavendish, very common in Africa. Different, mm-hmm. different varieties of bananas can affect each other. Um, so when you're moving bananas around, especially when you're replacing mono, uh, you know, multiculture with monoculture, you really are taking big risks. And what has been seen over and over again is that it's not safe. Um, those risks do not pay off. In Mozambique, they didn't pay off in profits. Those plantations are basically gone now because they were wiped out by the disease they brought in. Um, it's an environmental disaster. Um and it's a it's a social disaster. So there's a lot of thinking that that's not happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, a lot of strategic thinking that's not happening. And again, that's you know when McDonald's thinks about how to improve its market share, they don't think about grass fed beef, organic. I mean, they might if they could sell it. They don't think about sustainability. They don't they don't think about solar panels. Uh, you know, on their on the roofs of their restaurants, they don't think about finding ways to get cars lined up at the drive-thru, you know, 80 cars at lunchtime to be pulled on a conveyor belt so they don't have to spew exhaust while they're just sitting there waiting. McDonald's thinks about innovation, thinks about how to sell quarter pounders that aren't frozen, you know, and cook them from fresh beef. In other words, it, it innovates within its own sphere. It doesn't, you know, these companies can't easily break out of their comfort zones. Yeah. And yet they need to. And I think that's something we see in the banana companies also. They, they really need to sort of break out of the comfort zone. Yeah. Um, and then something you, you touched on this and I honestly, I'm still a bit confused about how this works is that how are bananas, you know, are they cloned or, or replicated? Cause, cause they don't have seeds. Right. So bananas are, are cloned basically. And there's two ways to do it. The, the traditional natural way, the way it happens in, not in the wild, but in the, in the average banana farmer's field, um, uh-huh. you have a banana tree, a mother tree, and it will only fruit once in its whole life. Um, you know, it, it pr- produces a bunch, but underneath the ground, it gives off a shoot called a sucker. That sucker is a baby banana tree. So the next year that tree grows, gives off its fruit, and the next and the next. So you have banana trees that may have 1,000, 5,000-year lineages. Um, wow. Now, when you want to grow a banana in that way, it's really easy. You just dig the sucker out of the ground. It's about you know, four, three, four feet long. It looks like a big bulb and you take it to where you want to grow it, shove it in the ground and you get another banana tree. This is why bananas became so important because they're so easy to grow, um, even without seeds. Um, and they're predictable because this method of reproduction creates genetic. I mean, it's a mother and a daughter tree, but they're also twins. They're genetically identical. So once you know how to grow this banana, once you know, you know, what kind of sunlight it needs, what 
how you know what kind of water it needs, where you should grow it, what kind of soil. That knowledge stays the same. You're not constantly reinventing the wheel. So, so the the you know original way bananas were grown is with these suckers. Um, so, like when I was in Africa one time, um, you know we're we're riding down this little dirt road, and we see this kid, and he's got a bicycle, and he's got like eight banana suckers tied to his bike. And I'm I said to him, "Where are you going?" He goes, "Oh, I'm going down to the next village." We're going to give these suckers to them and they're going to give us some coffee instead. It's oh. a microcosm of the way the whole world spread. You know, there's, there's a, there is a belief that bananas, for example, in Tanzania, which is on the Eastern coast of Africa came from probably some of some islands in the Pacific or Indian ocean over thousands of miles. Um, suckers were transported in boats, you know, p- paddled boats, maybe primitive sailboats. Um, and, People were willing to set out on these journeys into, you know, wherever they knew they didn't know where they were going, you know, these risky journeys because they knew they could carry bananas with them and grow them anywhere they landed. Um, yeah. And so one of the ways we know that is possibly true is by looking at the word for banana. And if you look at the word for banana in some of these Pacific or Indian ocean islands, the word is very similar to the word for banana in Tanzania. So how did that linguistic connection happen? Um, it, it must have been brought by people. So, so um, that doesn't totally answer your question, which was, um, what, sorry, what was it? <laughs> just went like, just, no, that was good because we were, I was asking how they're, how they're cloned, how they're recreated. Yeah, so, so the modern way bananas are grown is through what's called a tissue culture. And that basically means instead of a, a big sucker that you dig in the ground, you grow little plantlets, baby banana plants um, from, a, from a cutting. Um, and the advantage to these cuttings is that they can be certified to be disease-free. Um, and you can plant a lot of them at once. So you can plant thousands at a time. Um, it's basically the same thing. It's just a smaller piece of the banana plant. Um, certified disease-free is a bit of a misnomer because, sure, they don't – I mean, most babies born out of the womb are certified disease-free. Some are sick, but most are doing fine. You get sick later. You know, you can still get sick. So right. the tissue culture bananas are also clones. So what's great about a clone banana is consistency, right? It's, the, it's what we we're talking about. Every banana is basically the same. So they ship the same. They taste the same. They ripen the same. Um, very easy product, just like McDonald's hamburger, to, for the consumer to understand, purchase, use. Um, the problem is that... You know, what makes one banana sick, because all bananas are genetically identical to each other, makes all bananas sick. So all Cavendish are equally susceptible to all the banana diseases that Cavendish can get. Mm -hmm. And that means when a disease happens on a plantation, it spreads through like wildfire. There's no natural immunity. Um, You know, the susceptibility is the same for everyone. And the convenience of a cloned banana, I mean, no doubt it's, it makes it easier to be a banana farmer um, and a banana marketer. Uh, but the disadvantage is the, the risks you take um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of how susceptible these things are, how, how quickly your banana plantation can get sick and be wiped out. Um, and I, there's an imbalance now. You know, the banana industry is focused on convenience, ease, commodity. And is not focused enough on sustainability, variety, um, and, and social justice. And, and there needs to be a better balance and understanding. Um, you know, I want to send all new aging now, but there, you know, there's like 
banana industry reflects a planet that's that's way out of balance also. Um, mm-hmm. And I really believe, as crazy as it sounds, that if the banana industry can figure this out, and I do believe they can, then maybe the rest of the world, you know, might have some hope <laughs> as well. Right, yeah. No, it'll be so interesting to see, like, how this all plays out. And, yeah, hopefully we we take the right path. I hope so. Um, you know, I, I don't know. We'll see it in my lifetime. Um, I'm fairly optimistic. Um, you know, there are some really high quality disease resistant bananas being grown out of the, out of the labs right now. And those, those, those won't taste super great, but, but you know, they, I I think there's a chance we'll stick with the commodity and I think that would be a bad thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And in 50 years, somebody else will be writing another banana book and saying the exact same stuff that I'm saying and, you know, appearing on whatever goes for a podcast then and uh, saying, I told you so for the third time. Um, Right. Yeah. I'm the second wave after Grow Michelle. <laughs> Let's hope there isn't a third wave. Yeah. Man, well, Dan, this is so, this is great. I, thanks for coming on and sharing the whole story and, you know, running us through that. I love it. Um, I just have a, yes, yes. Yeah, here it is. <laughs> it's upside, it's, it's probably reversed, but uh, it's still, a, it's still, a, it's still in print. It's out in paperback. Uh, Banana, the fate of the fruit that changed the world. It's in uh, Chinese, Japanese, um, Arabic. Um, the only language it isn't in is Spanish. I don't know why. So if there's <laughs> publishers out there who want to do a translation, uh, find me. All <laughs> but, right, cool. But, uh, yeah, it's 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 been a great journey to to learn about bananas, and uh, and um, I appreciate your interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. And we can people can grab that book anywhere uh, books are sold. I guess right. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's you probably won't find it on the shelves, but Amazon always has it in stock. And you know, I, I, you know, since we're talking about sort of not encouraging monoculture, you know, your your local independent bookstore can order it and have it in a matter of days. Yep, right on, cool. Um, anywhere else we should send people if they're interested in you or any other stuff you're doing? Um, well, I can plug my next book, um, which is coming out in August, um, and it's called "Every Minute Is a Day: A Doctor and Emergency Room in a City Under Siege." And it's a first-hand account of the first month of COVID-19 um, in the busiest, most afflicted emergency room in New York City. Um, oh, book is very a big departure for me. Um, it's co-authored with my cousin, who is an emergency room doctor at that hospital. Um, wow! I come from a family of emergency room doctors. Um, I'm the banana black sheep, <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's it's it's. It's a very upsetting topic, um, but I think it, it helps. I hope it will help to uh, people to understand the levels of, of grief and loss that we've experienced as a culture because of COVID, um, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know maybe find some way to begin to reconcile that as as pandemic seems to be you know slowing down. Yeah, hopefully. That's, yeah, that's, Man, that's, cool, awesome. Well, I love it, Dan. Seriously. Thanks again for coming on, sharing all this stuff. It's just so fun. It's uh, I feel like I got a bunch of, uh, of facts to share with everybody I meet now and, until they, they hate me. There's a lot of banana diginos. Here's, here's, a good, here's one, one to say goodbye with. If you want to taste what a Gros Michel banana tastes like, eat some banana Laffy Taffy. Because the artificial flavors that were developed for banana were based on the Gros Michel in the 1950s. So... Anything that's artificially flavored banana is still kind of a yucky artificial flavor, but it is based on that earlier functionally extinct banana. There's no Cavendish right. banana artificial flavor that I know of. 
So go out and get wow. your coffee, and then you'll have a little taste of, of the long-lost historic banana. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And another one too, I just thought of it is the, um, it's so interesting how the, uh, the, uh, in the garden of Eden, it might've actually been a banana, right? Yeah. I mean, look, so I'm, I'm not going to say that the garden of Eden is something that really happened. That's a, that's for other people to decide what they believe or don't believe. Sure. I see the, the story of Genesis. Um, we touched on this earlier as the story of, um, mankind's, move from hunter-gathering, you know, in a Garden of Eden where everything is provided on the trees to cultivated, um, you know, we're cast out and Cain and Abel are forced to, one becomes a shepherd, one becomes a farmer, and then life becomes harder because you have to till the soil. Um, Mm. So I see that as a metaphor, the Garden of Eden as a metaphor for our emergence from hunter-gathered culture to, to communities. And if you look at sort of the history of fruit, um, and there's some interesting twists, mistranslations of the word apple on the part of Renaissance painters. I'd say it's fairly likely that the original Garden of Eden legend, text, whatever you want to call it, in, in the original Genesis actually was talking about bananas and not apples um, wow. based on cultural, geographic, and, and historic knowledge. Now, there are people who will say, no, 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 it wasn't bananas, it was figs. And they're just stupid. Come on, let's get real. <laughs> it was a banana, and I'm gonna I'm gonna right. stick with that. Even if, I'm gonna I'm gonna go down with the ship on that one. So yeah, that's, that's from Dan the banana man. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh man, well I love it. Yeah, well, I feel like we could just keep going, but it, it, it was so fun. Seriously, thanks again, Dan, and uh, you know, enjoy your the rest of the day and have a good weekend. My pleasure. Take care. And that's it. Episode 107 is all done. Not quite yet. We still have to record the outro, which you're listening to, but it's almost done. Uh, Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, Dan, for coming on and sharing that story. I loved it. Hopefully, you loved it. Maybe you have a banana lover, a banana aficionado in your household or a friend that you can call upon and share this episode with them. Maybe they might enjoy it or share some of the banana facts that you learned in this episode with your friends and family. I know I sure have. Uh, well, that's it. I'm Travis DeRose. You can find me on Instagram at Trav DeRose. Send me an email, Travis at curiosityness.com. And uh, I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.